Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Welcome to another interview on DTNS Labs. I'm Tom Merritt, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Rob Reed. Of course, you might know him as the founder of Rhapsody or the author of Year Zero and After On, or even the podcast After On. And if you've if you've read the, the books or, or listened to the podcast, uh, you know that there are some serious ideas uh, floated in a fun science fiction way in After On and then explored in a serious, here are the people who know about these ideas uh, in your interviews. Uh, Rob Reed, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, your your interviews in particular, but also the concepts you used in the novel, uh, are terrifying. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, because you you take them to their logical extremes uh, in a lot of this. And in fact, you've got four Medium posts, I believe uh, they're all up by now for people, that explore AI, synthetic biology, terrorism, a lot of these concepts uh, that are themes from your work uh, – in a way that, well, what, let, explain, why are you exploring these themes and where are you taking them? Well, so when I wrote the novel After On, which came out about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, um, it is in many ways a very playful romp. It's about this diabolical social media company that attains consciousness. So it's like a conscious social network and it basically becomes a hyper-empowered, super-intelligent 14-year-old mean girl. And there's a certain amount of playfulness that happens within the book, but there's also a lot of darkness because there are themes that worry me a great deal and trends that worry me a great deal in technology, not this year, not next year, maybe not even this decade, but down the line, uh, most of which I explored in the novel. And the two that I focus on the most in the medium posts um, are the long-term risks that synthetic biology could pose to us. And by the way, I should note that there are amazing things that, that synthetic biology has up its sleeve as well. And I am a wide-eyed fanboy of much of what is happening in SynBio. But there's some terrifying things that could emerge from this technology as well. And I also am concerned about some of the super AI risks that we might face decades hence. Now, both of those fears played out in the storyline uh, pretty vividly, I'd say, within After On. 
And in researching the book, even though it was a work of fiction, I do a lot of rigorous research for most of my works of fiction because I want them to map closely to the actual science and technology that we live with. In researching that book, um, I came across a lot of really brilliant experts in countless fields, quantum computing, consciousness, neuroscience, and also synthetic biology and also super AI risk. And so those got baked into the storyline in a way that I believe are nicely grounded in actual risk and actual fact. And what these medium posts that basically came out throughout the month of October, so the fourth one just went up, what they do is they kind of distill all the fun and humor away (laughs) from after on and really put a spotlight on these intermediate term risks that I'm concerned about. And I want to put a spotlight on them because The sooner we start worrying about things, the sooner we come up with, hopefully, creative solutions. And the dangers that we foresee are much less likely to bite us. You know, I I think one reason that we got through the Cold War, not unscathed, but without a nuke going off, is that we gave ourselves nightmares for many decades. We told ourselves terrifying stories um, about the apocalypse and what could go wrong. And we were all good and worried about that. And thank goodness the Cold War ended without a nuke being fired, although lots of awful things happened during it. Um, Nobody really had a nightmare about September 11th until September 12th. And I think that's one reason why September 11th happened. It was a crisis of imagination on some levels on the part of our defenders. And so this is trying to draw a little bit of concern, hopefully decades in advance. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's important to note. You you so, sort of bury the lead in in your uh in your post by pointing out that you're an optimist very late in, in the last yes. post. Uh and I think that's important when you're reading the post. You you need to take these threats seriously, but I, folks shouldn't shy away from reading them because they think, "Oh, here's here's another one of those doom and gloom guys who's just going to tell us everything is is over." I I think your your motivations here are important to realize. This is you're an optimist telling us yes. we need to worry because if if you're an optimist like us, uh, it might be easy to miss the warning signs. There's two things. Um, I'm a relentless optimist, uh, perhaps almost pathologically optimistic, particularly when it comes to science and technology. And I have always have been. And I'll pat myself on the back. I like to think I've often been right. You know, like mm-hmm. back in 1994, I was very excited about the World Wide Web and um, you know, there were a lot of there was a lot of doom and gloom about how stupid and overrated and ridiculous and 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 futile everything on the internet was in the wake of the dot com boom. Um, I was <laughs> very convinced that if anything, the internet was still underhyped. And I believe if you look at what the internet has done since the year you know two thousand or whenever the deepest darkest moment was, it was underhyped at that point. It was even underhyped at the peak of the bubble. Mm. Um, so there is that, and I think that if you are inclined to be wildly optimistic about what technology and science can do, you can miss actual dangers. But the even more amplifying factor is if you are an optimist, and by the way, I'm going to call myself a realist and you as well, Tom, mm-hmm. rather than an optimist, you're a realist. That's fair. You, 
you know how extraordinary of a future we are likely to have, we humanity writ large, and our children and our grandchildren are likely to have as a result of all the things that can and should go right with things like synthetic biology and with things like artificial intelligence. And so since the future is so much brighter than the present, much as the present is so much brighter than the past, and anybody who would refute that, uh, go to the dark ages for a couple of weeks and come back and tell us if the past was really that awesome, right? Yeah, read the a Connie Willis is, novel. You'll understand. Yeah. Exactly. So the future that we potentially have in front of us is so much more precious than I think non-optimists or pessimists appreciate that it's all the more important to safeguard that by thinking very, very cautiously about what could go wrong, because what could go wrong in the future is a lot. And I think that's a very important point, because I tend to want to think, and I think a lot of others do, uh, well, when knives were first uh, invented, we could have all stabbed each other, but we didn't. And, you know, when when guns were invented, we could have all shot each other, but we haven't. And when nuclear bombs were invented, we could have destroyed the entire surface of the Earth, but so far we haven't. We seem to be pretty good at figuring out how to subvert the danger as we get better and better at creating it. Uh, But... That's the past, and the past, as any financial advisor will tell you, is not a guaranteed predictor of the future. Yeah. So, and then there's the other. The other issue is um, the asymmetry mm. between the person who is inclined to be destructive and the potential victims. And so, uh, you actually charted a very interesting path there. Um, back in the days of clubs and knives, uh, which was really all weaponry until you know rather recently, a few mm. hundred years ago. Um, Weapons were very interpersonal devices, and somebody who wanted to kill somebody else either needed to surprise them, which happened, I'm sure, with great you know, frequency, kill them in their sleep, whatever it is, mug them, something like that, or overpower them. And therefore, you wouldn't have something like uh, what we just had in Las Vegas, this mass shooting in which several dozen people were killed and almost 500 people were injured. One person couldn't inflict that back in the days of knives and clubs. Uh, the technology simply didn't enable that. You had you had to have been like a real Goliath to do that. Now, this matters because a grim fact is, and a terrible fact, and something we'll hopefully one day fix, but a grim fact is that a very tiny percentage of humans and any given year will take their own lives. It's something on the order of one in six or 7,000. Uh, tragically, at least in the United States, over the past 25-ish years that we've had the most celebrated class uh, category of antidepressants, which is SSRIs, during that span of time, the suicide rate has actually increased in the United States by 10%. So if you and take when you the say C- rate, I think it's important. You're talking per capita. Per capita. We're not talking capita, like just a gross yeah. number because we have more people. Right. No, per capita. Per capita rate's gone up by about 10% while we've had what are considered by medical science to be the best tools we've ever had to fight depression. Uh, that that just means this is a very, very hard problem. And if you read um, Steven Pinker's recent book, Enlightenment Now, you'll know that on almost every quantifiable metric of human flourishing, you know, from infant mortality to literacy to the number of people who are living, you know, in relatively non-impressive societies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're getting better and better at at incredibly uplifting rates, but suicide is a stubborn one. So we have that tiny percentage of people across societies, socioeconomic groups, classes, you know, gender, et cetera, right? Now, even worse, a 
tiny, minuscule fraction of those people who get to the point where they decide to end their lives, a tiny, tiny percentage, malfunction in a terrible way, which causes them to want to kill as many people as possible on their way out, right? And there's almost one mass shooting in the United States per day. It's a little less than that. It's over 300 per year. So it's uh, getting close to one a day in this country. Now, not all mass shooters are suicidal, but a very, very high percentage of them are. And, of course, the most uh, unfortunately uh, renowned cases, notorious cases, were all cases of suicidal mass murders. And so, again, Las Vegas, uh, I think that was the biggest suicidal mass mass shooting in the United States, 50-something people killed, the guy took his own life. Omar Mateen, who killed the 49 people in Orlando, took his own life. The guy who killed all the children in my home state of Newtown, Connecticut, um, you know, sometimes people use the term suicide by cop. They intend to die, right? And they either get killed by the cops or they take their own lives. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of humans. But when there's 7 billion humans on the face of this earth, and there were probably 600 um, in 2015 is a year that I'm interested in for a reason I'll get to in a second. There were something like 600 suicide bombings worldwide that year. Uh, so there's a lot of suicidal attacks when you have 7 billion people. Many of them are ideological. Most suicide bombings are. Some of them are completely non-ideological. The, most mass shootings are not ideologically driven, right? But some of them have been in the United States, but most not. So when Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Somebody reaches that point, and they do. They do hundreds of times per year throughout the world. It's just something that happens. The force multiplier is technology. And so let's go back to stabbing. There was, this is a pretty gaulish statistic, and I talk about this, I think, gosh, I think it's in the second of the four essays that are on Medium. There was a spate of mass school slayings in China, actually, um, 
over a period of a couple of years, there were 10 or maybe it was 12 mass killings in schools. Um, but the deadliest retail items in China generally are knives and, and hammers and things like that. So basically medieval-grade weaponry uh, on a certain level. And so these attacks in China were mass stabbings. And the, total, the, the last of these mass stabbings, by very macabre coincidence, happened just a few hours before the Newtown Massacre. And then in the Newtown Massacre, roughly as many people were killed in that one ghastly act as in all 10 or however many it was of the Chinese killings. Now, that's just a statement of fact. When somebody, a suicidal murderer, goes all in, the force multiplier is technology. In Newtown, we have a semi-automatic weapon that does a lot more damage than a knife. And, you know, not trying to, you know, open the, the fraud issue of gun control debates and so forth. I'm just stating that as a statement of fact. When, yeah, when you I mean, have that more powerful weapon. There, there are mass shootings outside of the United States. And there it's are. the same comparison. You can use Anders Breivik. You can use a Canadian shooting, yeah. etc. The point Precisely. is these happen so close in time that it's, it's a fairly interesting comparison. An overwhelming statement of fact, somebody going nuts with a knife trying to kill as many people as possible is simply not going to get anywhere near the numbers as somebody with a gun. Now, let's step, take it up a notch. In 2015, um, a depressive German pilot named Andres, Andres Lubitz uh, found himself armed with an Airbus. And what he did is when the other pilot left the cockpit to use the restroom, Andres Lubitz locked the cockpit door and plowed the plane into a mountainside and killed all passengers and crew. So he killed about 150 people, which is far more than any mass shooter that I've ever heard of. And again, technology, force multiplier. Right. One person is armed with a knife. The next person is armed with a gun. Andres Lubitz had an airplane. Of course, the September 11th attackers did as well. But mm. let's, you know, kind of keeping in the non-ideological mode for a moment here, we do have these suicidal mass murderers. They do strike reliably from time to time. There's nothing we can do to stop that. So what my essays are about are saying what happens, or one of a couple of vectors in my essay, so one branch of the essay, ask the question of what happens some decades from now, not next year, not 10 years hence, but some decades from now, when the amazing and no doubt life-saving and life-enhancing tools of synthetic biology are very, very, very widespread. Uh, today, a very small number of highly trained people could, if they wished, make incredibly deadly pathogens. And it's been done back in 2011, which is a long time ago in the arc of synthetic biology technology. Researchers at the University of Wisconsin and elsewhere made a strain of influenza that was as deadly as the deadliest as we'd ever seen. It was called H5N1. That particular strain kills 60%, three out of five people who get infected with it. Swine flu kills one out of 500 people. And we fear swine flu with very, very good reason. We should all be scared of swine flu. Kills one out of 500. This monster kills three out of five, 300 out of 500, right? Mm. So a lot scarier. Now, what happened? They basically took this, University of Wisconsin, an experiment. They, they didn't use this term, but I'm going to say they weaponized that, that strain. And they created a strain or a substrain that is virulently contagious, now, 
that was only a tiny group of people in the world were capable of doing that in 2011. Uh, they were people who were not bent on killing people. They were scientists. They probably had the best possible motivations. They were probably doing it. And I'm sure they, in fact, they said publicly so they could understand what might go wrong in nature. But the point is, the, the things that only a tiny, brilliant handful of people can do in 2011 or 2018 will be doable by 10,000 people in a fairly short number of years. Let's say all biograd students, because the tools are getting better and the technologies and techniques are getting better so rapidly. CRISPR didn't exist in 2011. CRISPR, which radically enhanced the ability of people to edit gene codes, now they can. Now CRISPR does exist. And a lot of grad students in life sciences, and probably rather soon, essentially all of them are going to be masters of CRISPR. And another data point, which is really interesting, the Human Genome Project cost uh, $3 billion and took 13 years to sequence a single haploid genome, which is almost like half a genome, right? That ended in 2003, not all that long ago, right? 2003, that ends. Today, a single lab tech can do quite a bit more work than that in a day. So we're talking about, and probably for about $1,000 rather than $3 billion, so we're talking about a 3 million X price compression, and a, I don't even know how many billion X um, acceleration in the amount of work one person could get done because of the acceleration in the tools. These tools are continuing to accelerate. They're accelerating faster even than Moore's Law. So we really need to think about what can five people do today, all of whom are good guys, all of whom are brilliant, none of whom have a single odious thought, that 50 people will be able to do tomorrow, that 50,000 and eventually 500,000 people will be able to do. I mean, there will be things that are happening. There will be things happening in high school bio labs as part of standard experiments 30 years from now. Let's just pick an arbitrary number. Certainly 30 years from now that nobody in the world is capable of doing right now. And I think we need to start worrying about this today rather than 22.9 years from now. I mean, even if you just look at the history of computing, you'll see only governments could create yeah. computers and they were unreliable and buggy in the 40s. Yeah. By the 60s, companies could create computers, but very large ones. They were still buggy sometimes. It took a lot of maintenance and expertise to keep them running. By the 80s, everybody could have a computer, but you still kind of had to be a hobbyist and you still had to want to make it work and figure out how to make it work. And then fast forward to today where most of the world carries a computer in their pocket. Uh, Which is far powerful than the most powerful computer the, on the face of the earth yes, in the 80s. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a positive, right? It's a great now, thing. Now imagine, apply apply that same trajectory to everything. And and you're, you're I think, you know, making a good point by applying this to AI, applying this to, to synth bio. Uh, yeah. That, that is also going on with the weapons that were developed in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s uh, as, as well. And so uh, I, I like... I, I had many mixed feelings while reading through, through your columns, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, yes. But I like where you ended up, uh, which is why I wanted to start with the the prevarication that, yeah. hey, this, is, this isn't all about doom and gloom. It's you need to understand the risks to avoid them. And, and, and your, your explanation about how we didn't blow ourselves up in the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, because we imagined these nightmare scenarios, I think is a good one. When most of the really smart people thought it was almost inevitable for a very long period oh, yeah. of time. But luckily, there were some very smart people who were optimistic and relentless and figured out how to not 
allow that to happen. Um, you know, uh, one thing that I think is a truism, um, you know, again, to go back to the grim example of, of September 11th, uh, I've met a few people who work in intelligence and things like that over the years. They tend to be very, very smart, um, smarter than the average bear, as they say. I would imagine if you got four or five, uh, let's just say above average CIA analysts, you know, like top quartile amongst a very bright group, got four or five of them, you put them in a conference room surrounded by whiteboards on September 10th, 2001. And you said to them, brainstorm guys, you know, it's 8 a.m., start of the working day, we're going to brainstorm. How could you take down, how could some evil person take down the World Trade Centers with just a few box cutters? I'm pretty sure that that room full of analysts would come up with a very close cousin of what happened the next day long before lunch and maybe even before the first bathroom break. It, it really – Osama bin Laden was not a genius. He got away – he pulled it off, I should say. He didn't get away with it in the end. He pulled it off because of a lack of imagination on our part, our writ large society's part. And I think that that imaginative leap was really not that hard. I think, again, five smart people in a conference room could have said, oh, you could do this with a box cutter really, really fast. But we didn't have that imagination. We didn't ask ourselves those questions in anywhere near enough time to prevent that from happening. So that's what I want to avoid in this case. Now, how might we prevent terrible things from happening with synthetic biology? I can think of dozens and dozens of protective steps that we could take. And I'm just a science fiction author who studied Arabic as an undergrad and now podcasts. Far, far smarter people than me in the realm of synthetic biology and other domains will be able to think of much, much, much more intelligent countermeasures. But we can't start thinking about them 29.9 years out. I think we need to start telling ourselves ghost stories now. I think we need to start worrying about these things now. And the surprising thing to me is I have spent a great deal of time in and around SynBio over the last three or four years, first researching this book and more recently having a lot of brilliant people in this field who I think the world of as guests on my podcast. I haven't really encountered anyone yet i'm sure they're out there i just haven't encountered them yet who's worrying very much about this yet and that's what i'm trying to correct yeah well folks if you want to say hey wait a minute i need a i need to hear a little more about this i want to read into this myself good news you can as of the first of every month medium uh resets your free uh, article count to what I think it is three, Rob? I think it's three per month. So yeah, a, a, an important note. These are uh, officially behind the paywall. Uh, Medium hired me, was very generous to hire me uh, to write these things and to support this work, and it probably wouldn't have existed without that. So God bless them for it. But they do put it behind the paywall. Now, the good news is there are, I think it's three. There's definitely a few free articles that everybody can access with incredible, with no, zero friction. It's actually um, a very clean user experience if you still have your free articles. And since we are posting this at the very start of the month, hopefully most listeners still have um, those bullets in their chamber. Now, there, there are four pieces. <laughs> there are four articles in the series. So um, you might have to pick them carefully. If, if, you've, if, you've, if you don't want to hear anything else about synthetic, uh, I'm sorry, about uh, super AI risk, um, then skip part three, because that's about super AI risk, which I actually am genuinely concerned about and do not want to diminish. But um, the SynBio stuff unfolds more in parts one, two, and four. And it's all up on Medium. It's uh, medium.com slash then the at symbol, 
than Rob Reed, R-O-B-R-E-I-D. Yeah. And uh, on a totally separate note, if you use the Chrome or Safari browsers, you can also try the Opera and Firefox browsers as well. They're free to download. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you, Rob, uh, for, for joining us. And, th- and thank you for, for stoking this conversation. I, I wouldn't say starting it, but, but definitely no, not starting to light it. a fire under it. Yeah, I, there, there's some, um, you know, things like that Chinese school incident are chilling, but they stick in your brain. And there are several other analytical lenses and, um, you know, elements of simple math and other things that, that, that I think are new to this debate. Uh, but it's certainly a debate and a discussion I am not starting. But I, I do believe I'm bringing a few novel elements to it mm, um, that I think will, you know, I, I think will be additive. If folks want to follow your work in general, where should they go? Uh, well, my podcast, which is normally incredibly upbeat. <laughs> in fact, um, I think is when we post this, the current episode will be all about the science of happiness mm. um, taught by or, or in an interview with a, a primatologist and psychology professor from Yale University. Uh, but my podcast is at after-on.com. I've got almost 40 interviews with world-class thinkers, founders, and scientists really talking about um, their amazing work and how it's making the world a better place. <laughs> and it is a lot of synthetic biology. It is a lot of AI. It's a lot of neuroscience, a great deal of neuroscience, um, stuff about quantum computing, virtual reality, augmented reality, drones, cool, cool stuff. So there's that. And then I uh, am on Twitter at Rob underscore Reed. That's R-E-I-D. Uh, thank sure you, everyone, is. for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash DTNS. You get these episodes a little earlier if you have the Patreon feed, uh, which you can find there. And, of course, everything we do is found at dailytechnewsshow.com. We'll talk to you next time. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.